haven't been able to control the play in midfield the way Maradona's been able to do, and he's hurting England again here. It's a brilliant run. Oh, it's one of the World Cup great goals, and there's no doubt about Remember That Guy, the podcast where we mine our memories for nugs of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. I'm James, and thank you, God, for football, for Maradona, for these tears, and for, as always, my companions joining me here. Diaz with you again. That call on Argentina by the Argentinian announcer is an all-timer. James just gave the the translation. It es para llorar, but something that is not to cry for is the person we're very happy to have back as a special guest. Please introduce yourself, sir. That's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier. And I always love that the you know the goal of the century, as that goal has been referred to since time immemorial, aka the 1986 World Cup, is the second famous goal of that game. You have a game with a goal called the goal of the century, but the hand of God is the more memorable goal because obviously You're Maradona the same game. It's the same five minutes. Yeah. I love it. It shows you the full spectrum of Maradona because the hand of God shows that he's willing to do anything to win, including cheating. And then just five minutes later, right as you're like, God, oh, fuck that guy. He's like, he shows you, that he is actually also just the most talented player in the world. And remember, this was just after the Falklands War, so Argentina and England hated each other. Argentinian fans, you know, they, they see the hand of God, and they wouldn't have minded if Maradona stabbed an England player on, on the pitch and then scored. That's how little they gave a shit about how England fans felt. They, they really do love stabbing over soccer down in South America. <laughs> RIP, was Carlos Escobar? I think. Yeah, th- I, th- I thought he was shot. Hold on. Either way, they really love murder down there over their soccer. Definitely some, some sports related. Andres. Andres Escobar. R.I.P. Andres. Well, I'm sorry. We've, we've lost the plot here a little bit. <laughs> so you know what? Let's, let's regain our composure and let's talk about who's making memories for us right now. So making memories for me, two people who agreed to fight each other and legally in a ring for 10 two-minute rounds of the greatest women's boxing fight in history. Talking about Amanda Serrano versus Katie Taylor. It's so rare that you get a true super fight in boxing where it's the two pound-for-pound best going against each other. And it's all the credit in the world to Eddie Hearn and whatever you may think of some of his other antics. Jake Paul is a tremendous promoter (laughs) for women's boxing. He has done objectively very good things for women's boxing. Jake Paul has only seemed less shitty to me the longer he has been involved with professional fighting. And to be fair, he was climbing out of a hole that was miles in the ground. But he's made progress. Listen, I started exactly where you are. Dare I say now, I am a Jake Paul fan. When it comes to his involvement in the professional boxing world. Very specific there. But enough about the promoters. The promoters can make whatever fight happen that they want. But ultimately it's on the two people that are in the ring to deliver. And Amanda Serrano and Katie Taylor went to absolute war for 10 two-minute rounds. And no matter what kind of boxing fan you are, like if you're a very technical fan, you can appreciate some of the finer things. There were some great adjustments that both fighters made throughout the fight. 
if you are more of a casual fan and you just wanted two people beat the shit out of each other, they also did that for extended periods of the fight. They absolutely need to run it back. Katie Taylor, congratulations for the victory. I was pulling for Amanda Serrano. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with the decision, but I do. <laughs> it's, it's one of those fights where I can't say that it was a robbery. But for them to do it in Madison Square Garden, the world's greatest arena, and to deliver for a sold-out Madison Square Garden crowd, I, I hope that this is the start of women's boxing really making a, a big move into the mainstream. Women's UFC has already been there, but women's boxing really hasn't gotten the recognition that it deserves, and hopefully this is a launching-off point uh, for it to enter the mainstream. And if, if the best women are going to keep fighting each other, it's going to be a far superior product to men's boxing. It just will be. There we go. And I think you've also set us up perfectly to just check in with Xavier and see who's making memories for him in Madison's garden at the time of recording this, because uh, it seems to be somebody. Yeah, so um, as we are recording on Thursday night, the Rangers are in game two of the playoffs against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Two days ago, did stay up as long as I could, did fall asleep in the third overtime as the Rangers lost to the Penguins 4-3, despite Igor Shosturkin making 79 saves, which is the second most of all time. Here's the downside. It might be the second most of all time. Unfortunately, it is 10 too many to be nice. I know. I, there was a time where I was really hoping that they would just score when he was at 69, just so I could say that we won a game and our goalies had 69 saves. Didn't work out, but at least it was cool for Penguins fans that a backup goalie named Louis Deming, who had been eating spicy pork on the bench because he wasn't supposed to play as the third-string goalie, came on in, in one. So that's cool for Penguins fans. Not as cool for me. But right now, the Rangers are winning 3-1 uh, with six and a half left in the second period. So hopefully they can hold on to a two-goal lead this time and even the series up. Also, quick shout-out to the Yankees, who do have the best record in baseball right now uh, at 18-7 and with a run differential of 49, plus 49. Their 11-game winning streak did come to an end yesterday, 2-1 against the Blue Jays. But even in that game, they had bases loaded in the ninth inning, and it took... Vlad Guerrero Jr. full split to, to save the game. Been pretty happy with what I've seen from them after a somewhat lackluster offseason. So if they can get that up, that'd be very happy. But my focus as the hat that you two can see right now is pretty much solely on the Rangers. So hopefully they have won this game by the time we're done recording. I, I want to go back to the third string goalie coming in for the Penguins. Because I just want to clarify, this wasn't the emergency goalie that is available to both teams if all other goalies get hurt. No, no, this 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 guy is he's um, actually a, he's a real he's goalie. An, he's an actual NHL goalie, although he is a a journeyman who has not played a lot. The number one goalie for the Penguins All Star Tristan Jari uh, is out with a lower body injury because in hockey they really only say lower body injury or upper body injury, so you never know what the hell it actually is. And then midway through the second overtime period, backup goalie uh, Casey DeSmith, who had been playing really well, you know, robbed a bunch of Rangers chances, walked off, skated off the ice. No one really knew why, but Louis Domingue, who had been signed just recently as the, as the backup goalie while Jari was out, was asked to come on and 
because he did not expect to come on and because it was already double overtime. He did eat his dinner in the locker room in the intermission, which was spicy pork, and then went onto the ice full of spicy pork. So he wasn't eating it on the bench. He was at least eating it in the locker room. I feel like that is an important line. You gotta keep out of sight if you're gonna. I mean, he he did that during the game. He just went back into the locker room to eat it because no one need no one needed hey, him. That's that's fine. He recognized that that was not something that needed to be seen <laughs> in front of multiple people. As opposed did, has to... it come out at all since then? Why Casey DeSmith went off the ice? I don't believe so. Like I said, NHL teams are usually very tight-lipped about like what the injuries are. I, Okay, so I, that's what I want to clarify. This wasn't like when Antonio Brown just left the field during a game. This was an injury. No, it, it just says it, he's, he's day-to-day for a lower body injury, which is all that they really say, either lower body injury or upper body injury, which makes things very confusing sometimes because a lower body injury can be a lot of things. But you know what? Here's the good news. A lower body injury is not fatal for hockey athletes. I, however... Do want to talk about some athletes who, thankfully, these do not have any lower body injuries. It's not something that they walk or trot away from because, gentlemen, while I did do my screed for the Preakness last week, you know what? You, you got me thinking, Derby, and I did get a little bit into Derby fever. So I would like to talk <laughs> about the 148th running of the greatest two minutes in sports real quick, specifically the names. In case you don't know, all horse names have to be no more than 18 characters. They have to be considered relatively inoffensive. And then there's some more breakdowns kind of what that inoffensive means. But the most important rule is that it can't be anything that any horse that has ever won like a top stakes race has ever been called in the history of horse racing. So that's why horse names are insane. They have to be new every single time. There is, I guess, an infinite number of names or they're hoping that there will be forever. But that is what brings us some phenomenal ones this week. Now, this will have happened by the time this airs. And so I want all of us tonight to pick a horse. And I'll, if you want to be boring, I'll go ahead and tell you the two that are like the two prohibitive favorites. But then we can get into some of the fun ones. The odds-on favorite is Zandon. Three to one odds. That's a boring name. I do like the name of the, pardon this, dark horse that a lot of people are talking about. Clearly going to be in the middle of the action because its name is Epicenter. Uh, seven to two <laughs> odds, and this is the one that people are saying, like, that is your best betting value. So if, if folks out there are looking for, you know, betting in the past, if you were a time traveler listening to this episode and want to know which horse you should have bet on in the Kentucky Derby, you already know that answer because the Derby is taking place. But I'm going to say Epicenter is that answer. However, let's get into some of the more fun ones. Uh, some of the 20 to one odds. We got Zozo's. Z-O-Z-O-S, official horse of the McElroys. We got Simplification. <laughs> simplification. What more needs to be said? Uh, Smile Happy. My personal favorite. I'm going to go ahead and say, I think this is the one that I will be picking. Cyberknife. Those are the 20 to 1 odds. Pretty good. Diaz, you told us before recording that you've got a guy. You're, you're an inside guy. Apparently you're a bodega guy. Big horse racing knowledge. Sure. Cool. Love it. And he is giving you the inside track on a Messier. So, typically I would expect a fight between the two of you over that one, what with Xavier's aforementioned Rangers love, but I know that Xavier is going to be sticking with the brand loyalty to the McElroy family by going with Zozos. Xavier's got Zozos. Yes, you're going with Messier, and I've got Cyberknife. We, we are locking it in. These are the official 
2022 148th running Kentucky Derby picks from the Remember That Guy crew. And they will have been making memories for me by the time you're listening to this. And so that's that's who's doing it for me. But hey, we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about some guys. And Xavier, you were a successful litigant last week, so why don't you go ahead and introduce our category? Uh, sure. Thanks, James. Uh, so the category that I had for us this week was less famous family members. So it had to be someone who in a famous sporting family, and they are not the most famous member of this family. And because I have too much time on my hands and also wanted to do something special, I decided to fully prepare two different people and then have James and Diaz decide by flipping a coin. And so I am holding in my hand a coin. Diaz, I believe you're going to be calling it in the air. I think that's the way for us to split this up even. I think that's fair. Okay. Are you ready? The way I was thinking about it was there is soccer and there is basketball. If you call it in the air and you're right, you choose which one you want. If you're wrong, then James chooses. Okay. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. Tails. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Tails. Diaz, what are we going with? I need me some basketball, Xavier. Okay, basketball it is. And special shout out to who it would have been if it was soccer, which is Bradley Wright Phillips. But he is now irrelevant for the purposes of this discussion. So sorry, Bradley. So most sports fans know NBA Hall of Famer and member of both the 50th and 75th anniversary teams, Rick Barry. Many might also know that the dude has a lot of kids. His oldest son, Scooter, 55, won an NCAA championship in 1988 with Kansas. The youngest is Canyon, who is our age. Some people might remember him going viral on Twitter for his family-patented Granny free throws while playing at Florida in 2016-2017. That which, fucking kid. Which, let's be clear, objectively, it has been proven that for anybody, you will be more accurate yeah. if you actually practice and train that. You're going to be right around 90%. Anybody you can should, be a 90%. Everyone should do it. I, I will be one of the happiest basketball fans in the world when they finally adopt the granny free throws. I mean, the Barry family at this point has been doing this for 50 years. It is It, 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 it has something. become their thing. But I don't want to talk about Scooter or Canyon or Drew or John or Shannon or even Rick's current wife, Lynn, who is the former assistant executive director of USA Women's Basketball. This family is, is very basketball-centric. The person I want to talk about is Brent Barry. Oh, yes, Brent. I know Brent. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I thought that was just two dudes with the last name Barry. I did not realize they were related. Yes. Uh, so, Brett Barry, born December 31st, 1971, in Hempstead, New York, as the third son of Rick Barry. It is important to note that although he is Rick Barry's son, uh, Brett was only 10 when his parents divorced, and he was raised pretty much solely by his mother, Pat Connolly, who was also part of a basketball family, as she was the daughter of ex-NBA player Bruce Hale, who played... In literally the first years of the NBA, Bruce also coached Rick Barry at the University of Miami. A lot, a lot of connections here. And um, they were estranged for, for a little while. Brent later said when a, uh, when a kid is told their father is leaving, they think he's just going down to the store. He didn't come back for a while. It's a tough thing to deal with. Regardless, following in the footsteps of his grandfather, father, and older brothers, Brent takes up the family sport 
and he stars at De La Salle High School in Concord, California, uh, where he averages 18 points, six boards, and seven assists as a senior. Full time, he's trying to, you know, make his own name for himself. You know, he said all through high school, anytime myself or any of my brothers had any success on the basketball court, my dad's name would be synonymous with that. And, you know, it's a tough thing for someone to deal with. Not, not easy growing up being constantly compared to someone else, especially when you aren't even really connected with that person anymore. But he's doing his own thing, and he ends up committing to Oregon State. He redshirts his freshman season at Oregon State. They stumble to a 14-14 record. They had been a little spoiled where they had just had three straight 21 seasons and NCAA tournament appearances thanks to one Gary the Glove Payton. The next couple years... Quick interlude, uh, fuck Dylan Brooks, get better soon, Gary Payton the second. Yes, get better soon. Yeah. That was a dirty play. But this was Gary Payton the elder, not Gary Payton the second. Uh, and Oregon State has not had much, much success since Gary Payton, which I guess isn't a surprise when you have a Hall of Fame player and then no other Hall of Fame players ever again after that for 30 years. Brent redshirts that freshman year. In his next year, the 91-92 season, he plays pretty sparingly as a swing 2-3. Only averages five points, two assists, two boards. Uh, Oregon State once again struggles. They're 15-16. And the year is marred by the death of sophomore guard Ernest Killam, who had a blood clot disorder that was known about. They gave him a medical exemption to play anyway. Did end up dying from said blood clot disorder, leading to a lot of players deciding to leave the program. Uh, not, not a great time for Oregon State. His next season takes on a slightly more important role, starts over half their games, uh, only slightly ups his numbers, seven points, four assists, and three boards. But then he finally breaks out during his redshirt junior season. Leads the team in scoring with 15 points. Has four assists, five boards per game. Even though Oregon State is only 6-21. and 21. He's, It's known for being a bit of a loudmouth at this point. Even gets in trouble once uh, for publicly questioning Coach Jim Anderson's methods after a game. After which Regular Anderson, Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> after which Anderson banned all players from talking to the press without him being present. So he can make sure he monitors what they say. Um, I, I feel like I have to say this because I feel so bad about this thought. I was about to say that he sounds like one of those, do you know who my father is, guys? And then I remembered that his father left him and his mother when he was 10. So I just feel like I need to put myself on glass for having that thought. No, he, I mean, he, that's the thing. They, they didn't have the best relationship at this point. But from everything I saw, he does take after Rick very much in both ability and temperament. Not that it made him very happy to hear those comparisons. Also, Jim Anderson, not a great coach. He has one good season when he was led by Gary Payton. The rest of he's, his career... He's no Clarence Big House Gaines. Every year where he doesn't have Gary Payton, he is 57 and 83. So it, it's not great for Jim Anderson. So senior year, Oregon State, slightly improve. Hard to get worse than 6-21. and 21. They only finished 9-18, and 18, uh, but Brent's numbers exploded. Averaged 21 points, 6 boards, 4 assists, and 3 steals per game, while shooting 40% from 3 and over 80% from the line. He makes the All-Pac-10 team, talked about as a definite NBA prospect, and also earns the nickname Bones from his teammates because he was 6'6 and only 185 pounds. Oh, just for being a skinny boy? 
He's one of those skinny white boys. So second basketball player I now know of as Bones. Shout out Bones. Uh, Nashawn Nashawn Highland. Although Nashawn Highland wasn't even born yet at this point, I don't think. I think you can have a, a Bones a couple generations later. But so Barry is considered one of the flashiest players in the NCA and is known for his three-quarter court no-look passes. And also, he did like to dunk on people a lot. He really liked to actually land on people and use them as springboards, which you were able to get away with a little more uh, in the 90s. Even Rick Barry was impressed by his, by his abilities. Uh, he said, I think we both understand how the game should be played. We both get the ball to the people who are open and play unselfishly. But he does things on a much grander scale than I did as far as the skills he has. I shake my head in amazement at some of the things he does. He's got incredible vision of the basketball floor. He does things with the ball I've never dreamed of. Which is pretty high praise coming from an NBA Hall of Famer. And even if it is his father, again, they are, they're not, they are not very close. So this is not expected praise. One fun fact, while in college, he plays in an exhibition game against New Zealand. And while he's shooting free throws, a New Zealand player yells out and it brings a halt to the game saying can he do that isn't that illegal he's just trying to show us up and the referee <laughs> had to inform this new zealand player who had no idea who brent barry was that he was just shooting underhand free throws because that's his family's thing that he learned from watching his father <laughs> Well, and again, it's like, why in this moment does it then not have the, you know, no one thinks to germinate this idea in the international leagues? I just want to see everyone do granny throws. I think it's really funny. <laughs> and also I would much love better. that. Also much better. You should do it for the joke, but also it'll make you a better basketball player. I would gain so much respect for Ben Simmons if he came back next year shooting granny free throws. I would gain infinite amount of respect. I, w- I will stand up and applaud Ben Simmons if he does that. And the challenge has been laid down. I really want to see this now, but we'll have to wait because Ben Simmons is never going to play basketball again. <laughs> if you could bet on that, we're talking about value bets. I'd throw a couple bucks on Ben Simmons never playing basketball ever again. So anyway, Brent gets selected in the 1995 uh, NBA draft at 15th overall by the Denver Nuggets, uh, but he immediately gets traded to the LA Clippers along with uh, Rodney Rogers for number two pick overall Antonio McDice and Randy Woods. During his rookie season with the Clippers, uh, Brent averages 10 points, three assists, and two boards and emerges as a three-point specialist, one of the early three-point specialists. He shot 42% from three and set a then-rookie record with 123 threes. He also, because he is a man of many talents, wins the dunk contest during his rookie year, uh, beating Michael Finley in the finals with a one-handed dunk from the free throw line while still wearing his warm-up jacket. It is the most 90s-ass thing I have seen. He, he's got like the high... The final kind, round. Kind of like that's a high that's what tight. won the final round. Yes. Wow. From from the free throw line though. From I mean, the, okay, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's that's like the that's like the impressive dunk. Dr. J dunk. It, it's an that's impressive true. dunk. I, I will say, okay. like watching like watching it, it, it's pretty good, especially in slow mo, because he, he he takes off right from the free throw line and it's a well, lot of elevation. He, as long as he doesn't take like twenty fucking attempts to do it, honestly, fine, cool. Yeah, no, Fuck no one, Nate no Robinson. one made tries. Uh, no, <laughs> they were a little more uh, stringent about the rules back then. 
So a couple years later, uh, Brent's averaging career-high 14 points per game in his third season with the Clippers, uh, but then gets traded to Miami for Isaac Austin. His playing time craters on Miami. He goes from 32 minutes per game to only 16, and he only averages four points. And Miami doesn't bring him back after this season. So he goes to the Bulls. The Jordan-less Bulls, still trying to find an identity, signed him to a six-year, $27 million contract. His first season with the Bulls, averages 11 points per game. Again, for his three-point specialist role, shooting 41% from three. But Bulls still struggling, so they trade him after the season to Seattle for uh, Hersey Hawkins and James Cotton. With Seattle, he starts playing a flexible role where he's swapping between shooting guard and also the backup point guard spot to fellow Beaver, Gary Payton. He locks down a starting role by the next season, averages a career high 14 points, five boards, and five assists. He does pretty well with Seattle. In five seasons, he knocks down 669 three-pointers. Nice. Nice. And then in the summer of 2004... Brent signs as a free agent with the San Antonio Spurs. Also nice. Different <laughs> reason, but also nice. Uh, during the 04-05 season, Barry uh, had a bench role, started only 8 of 81 games, but then took on a more important role in the playoffs where he started 8 games and the Spurs defeat the Pistons to win the 2005 NBA Finals for his first championship. He also becomes the second father-son duo with his father, Rick, to have won NBA titles. First, Real quick, I'm just, we can't move on. We got to know the first. You can't drop that without telling us who the other duo is. So it's, I've never heard of them before. It's Matthew Gokas Sr. and Matthew Gokas Jr. Good for the Matthews Gokas. Goka Sr. won a BAA championship with the Philadelphia Warriors in 47. And Jr. won an NBA championship in 67 with the 76ers. Hey, good Philly boys. We love the Matthews. Gokas just became some like low-key new favorite players if remember that guy, I think. Yeah, but at least Jr. played for St. Joe's, so I can't like him. But, uh, Senior also I played can. for St. Joe's. They both went to St. Joe's prep and then both went to St. Joe's. Now, if they went to prep, of all the people to go to St. Joe's, at least they went to prep first. Fair enough. These guys sound great. I, I just wanted to be known. I love the Matthews Gokas. We're going to find <laughs> a way to, to bring them back for a deeper dive in the, in the future episode, I'm sure. And since then, two other father-son duos have also done that. The Waltons, Bill and Luke, and then the Thompsons, Michael and Clay. So right now, Brent and Rick are one of four all-time father-son duos to win NBA championships. So Brent plays three more seasons with the Spurs, wins a second championship in 06-07 when the Spurs sweep the Cavs. In January 2008, he tears his calf and almost immediately gets traded back to the Sonics. The Sonics then immediately cut him, and then 30 days later, he re-signs with the Spurs after the mandatory 30-day period to keep stuff like that from happening. 
That is even more bloodthirsty than the midseason Yankees to Cubs Araldis Chapman trade, and then he re-signed with them in the offseason. Like, what did they get from Seattle, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so this trade was Barry, along with Francisco Elson and a 2009 first-round draft pick for Kurt Thomas. Sick, yeah, that 2009 draft pick was probably, what, like the 28th? Fuck yeah. Greg Popovich swindled their asses. Yeah, and then this, this trade was February 20th of 2008. He re-signs with the Spurs March 24th of 2008. So he was only gone for a month. Adam Sandler, this is how I win, dot gif. <laughs> and he does score 23 points in game four of the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers that year in a rare explosion for him. Although the Spurs do lose that series in five. After the season, he ends up signing with the Houston Rockets, who had also been the last team of both his father and his older brother, John. It's where berries go to die. You beat me to the punch. (laughs) After one season with Houston, Barry gets cut and decides to retire. He later remarked that, quote, all the berries were buried in Houston. A burial ground, so to speak. Very nice. (laughs) So that is, that would be a great tongue twister. Berries were buried in the burial ground... We'll have to workshop that. I don't know how to finish. It needs to be a B word for Houston. Barry's barely buried in the burial ground. Simple. Straightforward. So, overall, Barry is currently the 51st all-time in three-pointers made with 1,395. When he retired, he was much higher up the list, but as we all know, three-pointers have become much more common in the past 15 years. So, most players who have been playing since the early 2000s and have had long careers are either close or passing to that. But he did shoot over 40% from three for his career. That's pretty good. Has Brooke Lopez passed him yet? Ooh, that's a good one. Brooke Lopez is my favorite three-point shooter of all time. That's just a catapult every time he shoots it. No, he does not. Brooke Lopez does not even have half as many. That's what I should have expected. One thing I just want to say about Brent Barry is he is one of those perfect prototypes of a player that if he played in the modern NBA would have been an all-star his game would have been so suited to the modern nba with having not only the athleticism to win a dunk contest but also the shooting range and at the time volume he would be allowed to shoot more threes today brent barry was a player before his own time if i had a time machine i would send jalil okafor back to the 90s and i would send brent barry forward to modern day and i think both players end up being borderline hall of famers if only if he Jaleel... switched uh, years with his half-brother, Canyon. Yeah, because, right, he has siblings that are 30 years around his age. Yeah, uh, Brent is <laughs> in his 50s and Canyon is 28. Congratulations, Rick Barry. <laughs> <laughs> so, after he retires, Brent Barry starts working as an NBA analyst. He gets a segment on NBA TV's The Starters, which was called The Bone Zone. He then uh, moves to TNT, uh, where he becomes a play-by-play announcer and the primary host for their players-only broadcast starting in 2016, uh, where he gets partnered with Derek Fisher and Grant Hill. He later moves on up to uh, partnering with Ian Eagle, doing play-by-play for the 2018 playoffs. He had a really good future in broadcasting, but he gives it up because in the summer of 2018... He joins 
the San Antonio Spurs front office as vice president of basketball operations, where he is currently still employed. Because why wouldn't you want to work for an organization like the Spurs that never fires anyone and it is extremely loyal to everyone except for the coach who was there before Pop? I was about to say we've gone deep on him, but goddammit, now I also can't remember his name. Bob no, <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, he's he's been great. It's nice to see that, like, R.C. Buford and, and Pop are both trying to find people in the front office that, that can take over, should they? It, it's nice that Greg Popovich takes the succession in case, like, something terrible were to happen to his health of the San Antonio Spurs more seriously than in the early 2010s, someone like, say, Ruth Bader Ginsburg took her succession. Like, it's really nice that Greg Popovich at least has his priorities in line. But RBG is notorious, as we need to consider as well. Notorious Brent Barry. <laughs> that could be a title. So just uh, one more fun fact. So Brent, being a man of many talents, also a uh, talented artist and poet and classically trained pianist who would relax before games at Oregon State by playing the pipe organ at Gill Coliseum before games. Yeah, that's pretty sick. <laughs> does he? I wonder if he ever does it for the Spurs now because they have, a, I believe, an organist set up at, at AT&T. I wonder if he ever ever tickles the keys. I wish I could find that information. I doubt that would be something that would get posted anywhere. But maybe when everyone's everyone's gone, he, he takes a, a crack at it. Um, Brian Berry, Phantom of the Opera style, plays the organ of the AT&T Center late at night when it's just the bats and the coyote mascot and him. Let, let's just let's just start that rumor. Let, 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 let's do it. That's a fun rumor. It, he uh, took one of the broken masks that Joel Embiid had a couple seasons ago for the playoffs, and he wears that to really complete the costume, and that's what Brent Barry spends his nights doing. Fingers crossed that as you listen to this episode, Joel Embiid has re-debuted with that same mask. It's the Phantom there, of right? the Wells Fargo Center. Officially out for the game tomorrow night, but that does, all that means is that he hasn't cleared concussion protocol yet. He could still clear it tomorrow. You're so, going to be there, right? I will be there, and if he plays, I'm going to cry. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will just cry so much. And if he well, doesn't play, we need to rally. We need to win one for him so that we can get it to 2-1 and give him a series to potentially come back for in Game 4. And by the time you listen to this, you'll know if we did that or not. So, we'll see. Yep. All the best on that. But Brent Barry, that was great. I straight up, here's the thing. Ever since I found out that Donald and Danny Glover were not related, I refuse to ever assume that someone with the same last name is related. And this has now burned me twice because not only were Brent and Rick Barry related, I thought, "Eh, no, I shouldn't assume that. This also happened with Marquise and Antonio Brown. I was like, surely these two individuals both playing wide receiver in the NFL with the last name Brown can't be related. That's got to be a coincidence. Cousins, Uh, Cousins, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. cousins. So you know what? We should assume more things about people. <laughs> Only when they're athletes and have the last name. Just assume, like, all the Matthews. All the Matthews, they're, they're definitely the same family. Or if you're a Boone, you're in the same family. It's just, that's just how it is. Well, here's, here's what I'll say, Xavier. For, for you, I've got a pair of siblings who, if you heard the last name, you would almost certainly assume that they were related to one another. Before I talk about them, there's one other player that I I need to bring up. There was an NFL player in the 1940s named Bob Breitenstein. The reason I bring him up is technically, he is the first ever Argentinian-born NFL player. However, 
He's someone who was born in the 1940s in Argentina with a Germanic-sounding last oh, name. Oh, no. I don't think we need to oh, talk no. about him as an Argentinian-born <laughs> NFL player. Oh, no. We can just kind of push that one to the side. And in the modern era, the famous sibling that I have, I'll admit, the older sibling is definitely more famous. And the younger sibling definitely grows up in the shadow. He's not Rick Barry famous, but he is the first modern-day Argentinian NFL player, the first ever Argentinian player to reach a Super Bowl, and that is Martin Gramatica. Martin Gramatica uh, is a place kicker who had excellent career with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers there for a couple years. But, as we were saying, we're talking about the less famous members of the family. And so, he had a brother that also played in the NFL. A guy by the name of Guillermo C., or I guess Guillermo C. Gramatica. For the life of me, cannot find what the C in his middle initial is. I have searched so many articles about Guillermo or Bill Gramatica, cannot for the life of me find what his middle name is. So please, if you locate it while we are recording this, interrupt me immediately and find that. But we do know that he's Guillermo Gramatica, born as the second child in Buenos Aires to parents Laura and William Gramatica. Buenos Aires, Argentina, they are born in, when I say they, he and his brother Martin, they were born in the 1970s in Argentina. So when they're growing up, they are big fans of Diego Maradona, which yeah. is why I did select a Diego Maradona play. I wanted to, to kind of get everything lubricated mentally that way, so we could have that Argentinian fervor in our minds. See, now I that's because his jersey was just sold for $9 million, uh, the Hand of God jersey. Man, wouldn't it be great if I had also known that? But you know that, and I appreciate that very much. Back to the Gramaticas. They're born in Buenos Aires, and Buenos Aires is not necessarily the safest place, as we've alluded to. There's a lot of crime. There's a very high murder rate in the 70s, and so these guys growing up, their parents, William and Laura, eventually do want to get them out of the country. Now, they are there long enough in their childhoods to develop a lifelong passion for their Argentinian soccer god, Diego Maradona. They do get to see his junior's debut. They have even seen the 1982 World Cup run that Diego Maradona has gone on in the Argentinians. So they are like full-on soccer heads when they, after that, emigrate to the United States. It is unclear when exactly they went. There are reports that place it anywhere between 1983 and 1986 which is recent enough that it's weird that there are this many conflicting reports, but I did find <laughs> citations of anywhere in that range, 1983 to 1986. That's when they moved to La Belle, Florida. La Belle, Florida, compared to Buenos Aires, which is a city of 2.89 million people, uh, La Belle, Florida has 4,210 people. So they're going to a much smaller environment. And because of that, there's not really a soccer team that has... There is not a competitive soccer team that the two of them enjoy playing on because this is two, like, Argentinian kids. They dust everyone that just plays in theirs, and there's no way to get recognized doing that. No one's watching LaBelle High School. One person that is, though, watching the LaBelle High School soccer team is the coach of the LaBelle High School football team. Martin Gramatica, in his senior year, is noticed by this coach. He sees the free kicks this kid's taking. He says, hey. I'm like every other high school coach in the country, except for maybe 10. I don't have a kid on my team that can kick a field goal. <laughs> Would you like to come onto my team and kick field goals? And so in his senior year of high school, Martin Gramatica, he switches from football to football, and he totally takes off enough to get an offer to Kansas State University. 
in one year of kicking, he is good enough as a senior that he gets signed to Kansas State University, gets a scholarship. The good news is there's another Gramatica to take over for him because filling in for him immediately is Bill, who just idolizes his brother. He says, even from when they were in Buenos Aires, Martin was very much the, the kind of parental figure. He's only a couple years older than him. And despite that, he is the one that is taking care of him as William and Laura were struggling to make ends meet in a not particularly good part of Buenos Aires. Uh, in La Belle, it's not quite that much, but Martin is still very much taking after him. And so Guillermo has always looked up to him. He wants to do everything that Martin does. And so now he's going to take up kicking. And the good news is he's also pretty good at it. He's going to be good enough that he gets signed to go to Florida State University. Both of these guys had never touched a football field in their entire lives before high school, and they are just so good at kicking that they can now become place kickers for good NCAA teams. Which, it's weird how unrelated to the rest of the sport that skill is. It has nothing to do with 90% of the game at any given time. You just have these two guys who are really good at using their feet to move the ball when no one else is allowed to do that. And yet it's, it's the most aptly named part of the sport. Again, love kickers. It just continues to be a weird vestigial thing in the, <laughs> in the sport. Xavier does um, make a good point, though. Like, we go quarterback, and then we go fullback, and then we go halfback. It doesn't make any sense. That is, hey, yeah. Nothing about football makes sense. We pretend like that sport makes sense when we watch it. It's, it's absurd. Try and explain the rules of football to someone that's never seen a football. They're going to hear you say downs the first time they're going to slap you across the face. The only thing that makes sense is that kickers kick and punters punt. Yeah, and boy do these kickers kick. Martin Gramatica absolutely takes Kansas State University by storm. He is, at this point now, in modern times, he's been inducted into the Kansas State University Football Hall of Fame. He is the greatest kicker in Kansas State University history, and that's, you know, Maybe not the absolute blue blood program, but that is a legit D1 program. Some of his highlights from it, his two years, because he has a bit of a slow start. He has some ACL problems early on, but in his final two years, he is going to, in 1997, go 19 for 20, goes 37 out of 38 on extra points, and he wins the Lou Groza Award for the best kicker in the nation. And then he comes back in 1998 for his senior season. He scores 135 points school record total now of 349 for his full four seasons he has the longest field goal in kansas state university history 65 yards that is the longest field goal in ncaa history without a t and he finishes second in the lugroza award the best news of all of this diaz do you want to guess what his extra point percentage is in this season let's go with a 969 it is a robust 100 because he goes 69 for 69 attempts. <laughs> oh, baby. The surprise 69. It's always the best. <laughs> so what you're saying here is that he is responsible for all of Bill Snyder's success. Bill Snyder owes everything to Martin Gramatica. He is so good that they're not even calling him Martin Gramatica anymore. They're calling him Martin Automatica, which I absolutely love. That is one of the best football names I've heard in a while. Football, not a sport that necessarily gets a lot of good nicknames, but that's a very good one. So all of this means that he becomes the second ever Argentinian-born player to be drafted into the NFL. And again, let's be kind of real. If the other one is named Bob Breitenstein and is born in the 1940s, Let's just go ahead and focus on Martin Gramatica. He is now in the NFL. He has been drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And what's that? This, if you look behind him, there's, there's a shadow 
that he's casting. What's who's that in the show? Oh, it's it's Bill Gramatica. We've completely ignored Bill Gramatica this entire time as Martin has risen up the boards. Bill Gramatica was easy to ignore at first at FSU because the first season they actually let the senior like finish out his year and and he's willingly redshirted. The next year, 1996. That's Bill's redshirt freshman season. It is the senior season of Scott Bentley. So he's getting sat for Scott Bentley that full first year. And the next year, he gets into a fight in preseason with Sebastian Janikowski. Sebastian Janikowski is actually benched for him initially. However, after the first couple games, he goes two for four for field goals and 10 for 12 in extra points. He's replaced by Janikowski, and he goes up to Bobby Bowden and says, I would like to be released uh, from my scholarship. He goes to the University of South Florida. This is still an FCS school at this time. This is a bit of a step down, but he does thrive at the University of South Florida. As a bull, that next year, he is going to go 16 for 24 and 46 out of 47. 94 points total is a school record. He has a groin injury the next year, but he is able to watch as his brother is drafted in the third round by the Buccaneers. His brother, a kicker, is drafted in the third round, which is just wild. He then goes on to make the all-rookie team. So, still in the shadow at that point, he's going to, on his senior year, go 16 for 24 again. He is going to go 29 out of 34 extra points, and 77 points is his total. He even punts six times for an average of 33.7 on all of his punts, and in the season finale, that season. He hits a 63-yard field goal as time expires for the school record longest field goal. That's the end of his college career. Unfortunately, that whole time, his brother has become a pro bowler and a second-team all-pro kicker. So even that season, overshadowed by Martin. But it is good enough for him to be drafted the next year by the Arizona Cardinals in the fourth round. Both of the Gramaticas kickers are drafted no later than like midway through the fourth round. Admittedly, in his draft... The only person I recognized after the fourth round was TJ Hushmanzada, like, <laughs> It was not necessarily a robust one. And he's having a pretty solid rookie season. In fact, he's having a better rookie season than Martinez having that year. It's looking like the trajectory is finally setting up for Bill Gramatica to, to step out of that shadow, to become his own person. Unfortunately, something that unites the two of them is what ends up bringing him down. They have remained enormous soccer fans their whole lives. They've remained enormous Diego Maradona fans their whole lives. They, for this reason, after every successful field goal, would always do, you know, the kind of running jump, throw your fist in the air celebration that many soccer players do after scoring a goal. Not on extra points, but every single field goal they would do this. In week 13 of his rookie season, at the time, he has an 80% field goal percentage, leading his brother, who has a 79.3 field goal percentage. He goes in to play the 5-7 Giants with his 5-7 Cardinals. With 8 minutes and 26 seconds remaining in the first quarter of the game, Ramatica opens the scoring. It's a 42-yard field goal, and it puts Arizona up 3-0. He jumps up to celebrate, comes down, and he tears his right ACL landing from this celebration and immediately crumples to the ground. He is brought onto the sideline, where he stays for the rest of the game, including two more field goals and an extra point, all of which he kicks. He does not handle kickoffs in that game. Do you have any idea who handles kickoffs for this game? It is a, think of a weirdly obscure, like, mid-2000s Arizona Cardinals player. Tom Tupa? Wait, no. 
That's a solid guess. That is not correct, but that is a solid guess. Emmett Smith. It is Pat Tillman. Pat wow. Tillman handled. I thought the that was too obvious. I, I thought that would have been a too obvious one, but Pat Tillman was was killed by his own troops. Just so we have that clear. <laughs> Pat Tillman handles the kickoffs for that, but Gramatica does handle the extra points and the field goals for that game. That is going to be it, though, for his rookie season. He's put on IR. You know, he he can still maybe come back from this. You know, this this was maybe his best chance in this season to take over. But you know what? Let's not give up hope. Maybe the next season he can step out of Martin. Oh, what? Sorry, I'm I'm receiving news that the next season, uh, Martin Gramatica actually goes to the Super Bowl with the Bucks. Super Bowl 37 in 2002 does become the first ever Argentinian to appear. As I mentioned, the Super Bowl. He also becomes the first ever Argentinian to win a Super Bowl. He parlays that into a 14.5 million dollar contract after three years in the NFL. Sorry, four seasons in the NFL. Only the one Pro Bowl appearance. million. This makes him one of the best-paid Argentinian athletes in the world at this time. This is, I mean, Martin Gramatica is going to fade out of the collective consciousness to an extent, but he has now made sure to stake his name in the record books, and Bill never really gets that chance from that point on. Now, he does get a couple other shots after the season. Next season, 2003, starts 3-for-4 on his field goals, and he continues his perfect extra point streak that he has up to this point. But on November 19th, he once again hurts himself. He, this, you know, Argentinian force, is replaced by the Arizona Cardinals this year in 2003 by a guy named Tim Duncan, uh, just as Manu Ginobili is starting to play with Tim Duncan in the Spurs. This is Manu Ginobili's uh, second season in the NBA now. That's just a fun little nugget. He's not as much of a fan of Tim Duncan because that does cost him the Arizona Cardinals job forever. But he gets a chance, sign on the next year with the New York Giants in training camp. He does lose out to Matt Bryant. Matt Bryant gets the New York Giants gig that year. He does get one final chance after that with the Dolphins to replace injured kicker Olindo Mayer. He makes three field goals that day. However, there is one point where the Dolphins score a touchdown. Olindo Mare. Olindo Mare. I, I was considering it, but I figured you My apologies. Olindo Mare. Hey, guess we're going to have a chance to say his name one more time, I promise. That's uh, he replaces Olindo Mare. <laughs> he makes three field goals. The Dolphins score one touchdown that day. It is the last touchdown that a team will ever score with our good friend Bill Gramatica. Unfortunately, this is the only extra point in his career he misses. He finishes 60 for 61 for extra points in his career. This was against the Arizona Cardinals, and that is his last NFL game. After that, just kind of fades away. Martin Gramatica, he he does hang out for a little bit longer. He is actually the next year part of Steven Goskowski's first ever training camp battle with the New England Patriots. He's going to hang around for a little bit longer in the NFL until his final appearances with the New Orleans Saints. He comes to the Saints because he is there to replace injured kicker Olindo Mare. And so both Gramaticas go out the same way, just as the Berries. You know, it's appropriate that families all get to end their careers on similar terms and, and kind of have that shared amongst one another. Uh, but that is the end of both the Gramaticas. They have remained incredibly philanthropic gentlemen in Argentina. They are the only famous Argentinian NFL players ever, so they are very, very popular there. But they're a little bit faded here. Again, is Martin Gramatica necessarily that famous? No, but he did cast a shadow that fit exactly the silhouette of one person and forever obscured Bill Gramatica, the only person I know of who ever injured himself celebrating a 42-yard field goal and tearing his ACL. All I can think about is Kendris Morales in that time. He broke his leg celebrating a walk-off Grand Slam by jumping on home plate 
and landing wrong while being mobbed of all his teammates, and he was never the same again. Look, we we do love celebrations here, but be careful out there. Always use protection. It's <laughs> the official recommendation of the Remember That Guy podcast. Well, that was a great presentation. We do have one person laughing before I present on my guy, Xavier. I am curious because in our pre-production, Xavier did have a baseball guy that was also a possibility, but I said, no, I'm going to claim baseball. So I am curious who your baseball guy was, Xavier. So my baseball guy was Billy Ripken. Oh, Billy Ripken. I would have gone in on fuckface so long, dude. That was, that was the thing that made me want to do it. If you had told me that you were doing that, I could have gone, gotten a real sealed fuckface card to put up on this camera for us to all, for those not in the know. Yes. Billy Ripken's rookie season. There is a, uh, you know, guys taking their pictures for the baseball cards. His buddies come over. Hey, Billy, you know, you're going to want to have a prop for your picture. It's like senior photos. You don't want to just be awkward there with your hands. Hey, take this bat, man. Hold this bat. Take some swings with it. He goes and takes a picture for this trading card. He does not know that his friends have written the words fuckface on the bottom of that bat. It is clearly visible in certain runs of this trading card. They did capture it after the first couple initial prints. Uh, you can get them for about 15 bucks online. I promise you it's worth it. Every time I look at that card, I smile. Best 15 bucks my dad ever spent. Because it's so visible on the knob of the bat. Like, it it is very prominent where if you just look at the card, you can clearly see fuckface. And somehow, a trading card company misses that. It's phenomenal. But, see, we still got to talk about this fun fact without me bringing up Billy Ripken. So thank you, Diaz, for that prompt. (laughs) No, I, I, was, I was very curious who it was because, I mean, there, there are some great options that you can go with from baseball. You have the Ripkins, Billy. You have the Maggios with Vincent Dom in addition to Joe. I'm going with a more modern one, slightly more modern than Ripkins, very much more modern than the Dimaggios. And I'm going to go with the less famous Giambi, Jeremy Giambi. That's a good pick. I like Jeremy, Jeremy Giambi. We'll, we'll, we'll start, start from the beginning with Jeremy, born September 30th, 1974 in San Jose, California. Of course, he and Jason are staples in the California area within baseball. And for Jeremy, it starts even before his run with the athletics that we will certainly touch on. As with Jason, they both attend South Hills High School in West Covina, California. And Jeremy does go a different route, so as opposed to Jason, who went to Long Beach State. Jeremy goes to one of the most well-known baseball programs, Division I baseball. Not known for any other Division I sport, really, but I'm talking about Cal State Fullerton. They have the Titans. Cal State Fullerton. Yes. Yeah, the Cal State Fullerton Titans is where Jeremy Jabi plays his baseball from 1994 to 1996. The 1995 team is a team that I just want to touch on real quickly. So one of Giambi's teammates on that team was Mark Katze, who is just, I think, another great baseball guy. Katze played for the Athletics for a few years, never while Jeremy was there. So this is the only time that they are teammates. But 95, Giambi and Mark Katze are mainstays in an extremely potent lineup, a uh, lineup that goes 57 and 9 that year, which to this day is the most wins by a Cal State Fullerton team in a season. But it's great to stack up those wins in the regular season. 
how do you do when the chips are on the line? And this Cal State Fullerton team does about as well as you can when all the chips are on the line. They advance to the regionals, they make it to the College World Series. In game one, they beat Stanford 6-5. to five. Stanford puts up two runs in the eighth to make it a little scary, but Fullerton holds on. John B. does go 0-4 in this game, but he has a walk and he scores a run. This is the only game in this run that Giambi does not have at least a hit. In game two, they play Tennessee, and they absolutely smack them. Cal State Fullerton wins 11-1. Giambi had a two-run single. Off to a tremendous start in the College World Series. I'm not sure how exactly the brackets broke down that then in game three, they play Tennessee again. But it doesn't go much better. In fact, it actually goes slightly worse for the Volunteers. Volunteers get beat 11 to nothing in this game. Jambi again goes one for three with an RBI. And in game four, you have two chances to win one against South California, USC. And they only need the one. Kelsey Fullerton wins 11 to five over the Trojans to win the 1995 College World Series. 38 runs in four games. Pretty good. 39 runs. Because they dropped 39. 11. In, they dropped 11 in each of their three later wins. And the only close game that they played was against Stanford, 6-5 to five in game one. My God. An absolutely dominant team within an absolutely dominant program. Giambi puts up some very impressive numbers for the year. It's 349 with a 465 on base percentage. 508 slugging. Uh, also has four home runs to go with 37 RBI. Coming back for the 1996 season, they are not as successful this time. They do get to regionals, but do not make it out of regionals to the College World Series. But it is certainly through no fault of Jeremy, because Jeremy has his best statistical season. It's 396 with a 517 on base percentage and 573 slugging percentage. Finishing with six homers and 58 RBI. He was named All-American this year as well. His only time being named All-American. But... Anytime uh, the OPS is up north of 1, <laughs> approaching 1.1, 1. 1, you're doing pretty good. Anytime the on-base percentage is above 5, and anytime the slugging is above 5, and you only have 6 home runs, too, which means he's cranking out doubles, so you have to assume he's got a little bit of speed, too. Jobby was an all-around player, is the way he was always known as, as opposed to Jason was slightly more of the, the slugger. Um, Jeremy was known as more of a well-rounded player. It's certainly a player that was known for his base running, except for one time that we <laughs> But for the career with Cal State Fullerton, just a couple notable statistics. With his 476 on base percentage and his 996 fielding percentage, both to this day are third all-time for a career in the history of the Cal State Fullerton baseball program. So, <laughs> Wow. On both ends, both fielding and getting on base, one of the absolute best that there was at Cal State. And this is then recognized and parlayed into the 1996 MLB draft, where he is drafted by the Royals in 1996. Doesn't take Jeremy long to break through into the major leagues. He is a September call-up in 98 for the Royals. In 58 at-bats, bats 224, with 11 walks and 9 strikeouts. He does have 2 home runs. OPS of 739. But again, just a September call-up. He steps in and is able to prove that he deserves some more opportunities. So then coming back for the 99 season, he makes the Royals out of camp. He's still just a bench piece. 
Um, but across 90 games in 288 at-bats, he hits 285 this time. His slugging percentage, however, drops. So from a 224 to a 285 batting average, an increase of 61 points. His slugging percentage goes down from 397 to 368, a decrease of 29 points, which seems tough to make those numbers work. It's, yeah, that's just a whole lot of singles. Of his 82 hits, only 17 were for extra bases versus of 13 hits the previous season, six were for extra, for extra bases. So percentages, that, that could make sense. This is the kind of thing where, like, I do wish we had StatCast here because I would love to see. Is this a matter of he's seen a huge drop in batted ball velocity versus previous years? Or is this just, like, a matter of fielders were placed around him well and, and even well-batted balls were just getting fielded more easily? Well, exit velocity is certainly down from college because this is still when they're allowed to use the full titanium bats. Oh, which, shit. Okay, yeah. <laughs> which seems, like lethal like i'm amazed i'm sure that there are players that unfortunately passed away due to that but i'm amazed there weren't more here's the good thing as someone that's been hit in the face with an aluminum baseball bat it's a lot lighter than you think it is the bat itself or a ball from the bat needs to be the bat itself oh wow that's that that's a story right there holy hell it's i have a scar running the entire length of my left eyebrow it's just perfectly hidden under my left eyebrow i never knew that was what that was from Incredible. Well, the exit velocity of a baseball would have maybe done would more all, damage. So yeah, I'm, that would probably was, obliterate my head. In this context, I'm glad it was just the bat. Yes, wasn't let's the, all be the, thankful that only a bat hit me in the head. <laughs> Sincerely. But um, exit velocity certainly would have been more in college as compared to this 99 season with the Royals. This does end up being his last season with the Royals. In the following offseason... He is traded to the Athletics in exchange for Brett Laxton. Jason and Jeremy are now united as teammates on these Athletics teams. And in his two seasons in Oakland, Jeremy ends up playing the most games as he will of any stop that he makes in his professional career. For the 2000 team, he plays in 104 games and across 260 at-bats has a 254 batting average uh slugging does come back up seems to normalize more with what you kind of expect he has a 423 slugging to go with the 338 obp for a 761 ops next season is the season that his most well-known contribution to the lore of baseball is logged but before we get to that he does have a very good season in the 2001 season with the athletics across 124 games and 371 at bats he bats 283, which is the second highest mark for his career, with a 391 OBP and a 450 slugging. So 841 OPS, very solid for the fourth outfielder, preferred bat off the bench. Uh, he also starts playing first base around this time with the Athletics. So very solid numbers. But curiosities, like is was he their primary DH or did they have someone else to to DH for them at this point? Because I know they're about to have like a, a slew of sluggers. So I've seen that Moneyball that Moneyball movie where they talk like, about getting Jeremy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're we're getting right up to Moneyball. He was platooned with Olmedo Sainz. He's uh, probably the more famous of those two. I would say so, and yeah, he ended up having seventy more at bats than Sainz. So it is a platoon. 
but it is one that slightly favors Jeremy to the extent that uh, when we get to the playoffs, Jeremy is the one that's going to be trusted to be on the field. And Xavier's going to love where I'm going with this. Yes, um, yes, I am. <laughs> because, I mean, Xavier set the scene because I feel like you, you would still know the inning and the runs. Uh, I mean, so that whole postseason kind of blends in a bit because, I mean, this is just after 9-11. So all of New York is really getting behind the Yankees. And for the first time, most other states and cities don't hate the Yankees as much, even though they have just won three titles. James might be different on, on this one, but there there was a little bit of less hatred because of what New York had kind of just gone through. Um, so it's the ALDS between the Yankees and the A's. And the A's win game one and game two in New York. Uh, this is best of five. And game three, Yankees behind Mike Mussina are up one nothing in Oakland. They need to win this game to keep the series alive. So we're in, uh, I believe, the seventh inning at this point, and Jeremy Giambi is on first base. Terrence Long is up to bat. Diaz, do you want to take it from here? I'll take it from here. So Long hits a line drive down the right field line, lands fair, and heads down into the corner. Shane Spencer is the right fielder, and he has two potential cutoff options available to him. He could hit Alfonso Soriano, or if he wants to try to put a little more on it, he's also got Tino Martinez as a cutoff man. Shane Spencer has a little too much adrenaline on this throw. He ends up airmailing it over both of them. And of course, Jeter comes in out of nowhere. There's no reason for him to be anywhere near this play, but he comes flying in, he picks it up, he flips it. And this is where I need to confess, I always thought it was Jason Giambi. It wasn't until I started doing this research that I learned that it was Jeremy. But Jeremy Giambi, for as much of a great play as it was by Jeter, if Giambi just slid to the back corner, he's getting in and he's getting in pretty easily. But he doesn't because nobody expects Jeter to make that play. Jeter does make that play. That's Giambi at the plate. Yankees go on to win that game. Yankees go on to win the American League that year. I mean, I'll real are, quick just say this is this is an obvious product of Derek Jeter's habit of being out of defensive position. We are not going to talk shit about Derek Jeter after talking about one of the most famous plays in playoff history. You can talk shit about Derek Jeter another I, time. When I'll, I just, I'll just bring him make up sure it's so, to be on when the record. When that ESPN documentary comes out next month and I talk about him a lot, then you can talk about his defensive frailties. This magical play we will is, not shit talk. I was shamelessly rooting against the Yankees this entire postseason, so that's all. Just absolutely sipping on that haterade. What the only thing I want to say is, I feel like in retrospect, Derek Jeter is a great baseball example of the analytic stat nerd versus the he got that dog in him. Because Derek Jeter, a hundred percent, had that dog in him. Oh yeah, nobody can deny. I'm not, I'm not saying Derek Jeter is not a good baseball player. Derek Jeter had that dog in him, but. Um, to get back to Jeremy, to this day, who knows why he didn't slide. Um, but uh, this one play could be taken as an example of 
one of the issues that the Athletics maybe had with Jeremy Giambi. Of course, Moneyball, I'm sure we've all seen Moneyball. Jeremy Giambi is portrayed in this movie as being, I don't want to say the antagonist, but when you look at what they were trying to turn the athletics into and the culture that they were trying to overcome, Giambi is portrayed as the person that is a bad culture, right? So he's shown dogging it on a fly ball. He's shown partying in the clubhouse after a loss. And then his trade away from the team is then portrayed as like a pivotal moment in like the, the turning around of the franchise. This is Hollywood, of course. So not all of that is true, but there is some truth to it. The introductory shot when they show Giambi when he misses the fly ball is inspired by a genuine time that the entire athletics front office was seething that he wasn't going after a line drive into the gap harder. It ended up being a triple. It probably should have been held to a double. But all that to say that he is traded in the middle of the 2002 season to the Phillies, which sets up a segue into one of my favorite video games of all time, which is 2003 MLB Slugfest. There's three versions of this game that were released at three different times. And based on the production schedules and whatnot, all three were released after the trade. But the PlayStation and Xbox versions were went into mass production before the trade. However, on the GameCube version, which is the one that I played, Jeremy Jompy is on that Phillies team. And I played this game for years. I would have to go back and see if I could still dig it up somewhere. Back at, uh, back at my house. is house. great. I loved turning your guys into minotaurs and stuff. Turn them into the <laughs> minotaurs, um, punching the fielders. I love... Oh, getting into fights was so good. What I always loved is, like, as a pitcher, like, it was a risk throwing at a guy that was heating up. But you also had the chance that then your pitcher caught fire. All-time game. Sports games need to make more of a return to this. I'm tired of, like, the super accurate simulation, blah, 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 because... That ultimately just ends up being frustrating. Chicks dig the long ball, so do dudes, and we dig MLB Slugfest, and we want to be able to punch people when we're running around the base paths. Please bring it back. But so Jeremy, I would always, I would always play with on the Phillies with those teams. So despite the fact that he only plays 82 games with the Phillies, where he does have probably the most success that he has of any stint anywhere, really, because. In those 82 games with the Phillies, he hits 244, but with a 538 slugging percentage and a 435 on base for a 974 OPS to go with 12 homers and 28 RBI. By far his most effective stretch across that whole season, including the 42 that he plays with the Athletics, he does set his career high mark for OPS. It was 919 for the total season. Uh, his 505 slugging was also a career high. His 414 OBP was his second highest, and all this with just a 259 batting average. He had two other seasons where he had a higher batting average. That's really interesting to me that he's portrayed as this like anti-moneyball guy in the movie. If he's a, a player who's like with that average, having such an IOBS, because it uh, kind of implies that he's doing exactly what you want to do, which is drawing a lot of walks to get on base, and when he's hitting taking big cuts that he's hitting for power. Exactly. It, it is quite a twist of irony that he's portrayed in that way when he could have arguably been the poster child. But after this 2002 season with the Phillies, uh, 
they choose not to resign him, uh, which means he's a free agent. So uh, at the age of 28 now, coming off of his best season, we have some major storylines being set up because while Jason is with the Yankees, Jeremy signs with the Red Sox to be their designated <laughs> First of all, they are the third pair of brothers to ever face off in that rivalry. The first being Bill Dickey, who was a Hall of Fame catcher for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And his brother, George, who caught for the Red Sox from 35 to 36. Both catchers so, like that. So they have that overlap. And then we also have Joe DiMaggio with the Yankees and his brother, Dom, who spent his entire career with the Red Sox. And yeah, you, I want to say, back when we initially introduced this, when we were saying Dom DiMaggio is like someone's overshadowed by Joe DiMaggio. Is Joe DiMaggio better? Yes. Dom DiMaggio has a very respectable career with the Boston Red Sox. 100%. It, Vince uh, DiMaggio he, is nothing. But Dom DiMaggio is a legit player. Dom was a very legit player. Deserves credit for his own career, but would also have been another great candidate for overshadowed brothers. Absolutely. But... With Jeremy, so he signs with the Red Sox in 2003 to be their designated hitter. And, in fact, on opening day of the 2003 season, he is obviously their designated hitter. Who was benched for him is Hall of Famer David Big Poppy Ortiz. To start the season, the plan is Jeremy's going to be a designated hitter. We'll get Big Poppy in in some opportunities, but... And Ortiz is coming off of not very successful stint with the Minnesota Twins. In fact, mm-hmm. on that Slugfest team, he was on the Twins. So to start, it, it, Jeremy is supposed to be the, the guy. Uh, unfortunately, he has shoulder injuries. And the shoulder injuries end up actually being pretty debilitating to his career, certainly to his season. So coming off of career highs in all of those statistical categories that I gave, he now sets career lows in all of them except for OBP. His OBP was only 04 better than his worst season, but his batting average of 197 with a OBP of 342. The only worst year was 2338 with Oakland, and a 354 slugging percentage for a admittedly nice, but not the stat that you want to see, 696 OPS. Nice, but uh, also not that nice. <laughs> nice, but not nice if you are Theo Epstein running a professional baseball organization. So after just 50 games, they do part ways, and this is the end of Jeremy's professional baseball career. So across 510 games for his whole career, he is a 263 hitter with a 377 OBP and a 430 slugging percentage to finish with a ultimately respectable 807 OPS. And really, with, without that shoulder injury, who knows how good he goes on to be? Because let, 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 let's set the record straight. Was not on Jason's level. Yeah. But was making a very successful career of his own until, unfortunately, the shoulder injury just, that was, that was really it. Um, well, the shoulder injury and David Ortiz getting really good at baseball at the same time. And David Ortiz getting really good at baseball. And also David Ortiz taking steroids, which I'm going to tell the Jeremy Giambi story. I cannot skip over the fact that he was indicted for steroid use in the Balco scandal. Uh, Victor Conti, everybody's favorite. We all know that. <laughs> um, not to pass judgment on Jeremy at all. I am wholly sympathetic 
to those who in, in that era in baseball, you know, made the decisions that they needed to make to prolong their careers. So that's it for the baseball career of Jeremy and nothing very noteworthy to say about his post-playing career, except for the unfortunate news that listeners may remember that in this past February on February 9th, 2022, Jeremy was found dead at his parents' home was ultimately determined that he had taken his own life, which is of course tragic and don't need to dwell on that too much. Which is the family, but all of that to reflect on the totality of the life of Jeremy Giambi, the less famous Giambi, but a Giambi who, in his own right, was making an incredible career for himself, and for better or for worse, in his instance, is an indelible part of baseball lore for being the player to get out on the Jeter flip. So, not the thing you want to be remembered for, but a thing that he will be remembered for nonetheless. Jeremy Giambi, my baseball guy, to bring to you all this week. Being the victim of the flip is probably less embarrassing than the first clip of you coming up when you get searched uh, is, is tearing your ACL celebrating a 42-yard field goal. Very fair. Very fair. As at least, like, people are that out at home plate all the time. That being said, I do it. There are so many people in the comments of that video who are, like, are tearing into him for celebrating that particular field goal. Like, no! Let the dude jump up and pump his fist every time he kicks a field goal. Who are you to say that? Shut up, YouTube commenters. Sounds like something that somebody would say who hasn't played in the NFL. Well, we've got got three lesser-known family members. Brent Berry, Bill Gramatica, and Jeremy Giambi. I like Jeremy Giambi a lot. Does Jeremy Giambi stand on his own enough without Jason Giambi, do you think? I don't know um, the answer. I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Do you think he does? I mean, I think he certainly would have made it to the bigs, even if his last name was like Jeremy Johnson or, or something like that, right? Certainly. Like, he would have had his own career. I do think that, so I mean, he's immortalized because of his depiction in Moneyball as kind of an asshole, which I do want to set the record straight. That's like really not fair. Tom Verducci, uh, when he was speaking on MLB Network after he passed away, the quote he gave was, the best judgment of a player comes from teammates, and you couldn't find a teammate who didn't love him. So, certainly the baseball community doesn't look at Jeremy Giambi as just Jason's little brother. I, I want to advocate for, for my friend Bill growing up in this, in this constant shadow, but I will admit that less famous is very relative here, because it's not like Martin Gramatica is, is a household name to the extent that Rick Barry or Jason Giambi are. You know, speak for yourself as a person who was a 10-year-old boy who was traumatized by the 2002 Buccaneers run. I remember Martin Gramatica (laughs) indelibly and every day. And I remember Warren Sapp and I remember Derek Brooks and I remember Brad Johnson. I remember Keyshawn Johnson. I remember Rondé Barber and I remember Martin Gramatica. Rondé Barber, another uh, good... Notable, but slightly less famous, I think, of sports relative. Tiki went on to have the TV career. No, that's yeah, fair. I would. If you said Barber, I think the first one people would say would be Tiki over Ronde. No, that's fair. I mean, so I mean, I, I love Brent Berry. I always have. Brent is, as as I said earlier, I think he's such a perfect case study of a player who is just ahead of his time. He was in the wrong era, and to still 
be involved in basketball, I think, speaks to his credentials as a basketball guy. That's that's what I would say. And that's maybe the thing that I would then say as somewhat of a knock against the Grammaticas. They're not football guys. Admittedly, they're football, football guys. Hombres de football. Hombres de football, but not football men. I'm kind of in the same camp as Diaz as I like both Brent Barry and Jeremy Giambi. Uh, I like the Grammaticas. I think the only real issue I had is that because of the fact that they pretty much came up at nearly the same time, it was almost as much of a story about Martin as Guillermo, Mr. Bill. I'm happy with either Brent or Jeremy, and I think it sounds like Diaz is happy with either Brent or Jeremy. So, James, I think that's up to you to really decide who it should be. Here are some things that I like. Here are some things just in life, independent of this discussion, that I enjoy. I like any kind of narrative where parents have in some capacity scorned a child and that's that's motivation for a child growing up. I like it when people shoot granny free throws. I adore it. I just love it so much. And another thing that I like in life completely independent of this is the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, <laughs> Look, I, I I wanted to discuss the other people for a little bit because yeah, no, it's Brent Berry. It's 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 Brent Berry, y'all. No arguments here. I feel happy that I uh, came up with two different people, and then the coin flip came up the right way for this particular episode. I feel like I played myself picking the basketball guy. <laughs> uh, X, I'll go ahead and tell you if you told talked about Billy Ripken, I would have voted for you. Like you you were ready, man. <laughs> well, Billy Ripken was the third was the third guy. Remember. Bradley exactly. Ray Phillips is the other person, so. You had, of three, at least two that I would have voted for. I feel pretty proud about that. I feel I good about the preparation that was done today. I'm proud of you. Guess what? That means all of us have repeated at least once now. Diaz, enough joking around here. We have some, some duties to, to partake in. So, without further ado, to one of the... He might be the only. Is he the only dunk contest to also compete in three points? Zach Levine may have since. Not not sure. The only the only weird stat I saw about that was that he was the first white guy to win the dunk contest. But I, I couldn't Listen. find anything else. Shout out to Woody Harrelson in White Men Can't Jump personified. Disproving the stereotype. And that was the article he... I read. It said Brent Berry, White Man Can Jump. The first white man in history to demonstrate that he can jump, in fact. Three-point specialist, noted basketball man, and a noted basketball family. Brent Berry, welcome into the Hall of Guy. Congratulations. And hey, shouts to Rick Berry for his prolific procreation. Uh, shooter's going to shoot. <laughs> but that's what he said. You know, you have to have a family for someone in your family to surpass you. As I'm going to go ahead and say Brent Berry is done. I think in this moment now, with his entrance into the Hall of Guy, he is actively stepping out of the shadow of his father, which will not darken our halls. Quite the morbid turn we've made here right at the end. We we discussed the internment of their corpses not an hour ago. And I think once we start talking about how we're going to deal with the bodies of ex-NBA players, that's when it's time for us to head on out. Go Sixers, go Rangers. I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as a wise Canadian once said, I'm not your friend, guy.